This is Sportsnet Today with Logan Gordon on your official home of the Flames. Sportsnet 960 The Fan. All right, it's hour two. Sportsnet today on a Flames game day. The Flames and the Vegas Golden Knights, the Pacific Division leading Vegas Golden Knights. Flames have never won in Vegas since the team entered the league back in 2017 2018. Can they snap that tonight in the back half of a back-to-back that saw them with a 6-3 win Wednesday night in Arizona? Logan Gordon along with you. Outstanding production team of Cam and Taylor in the other room. And uh, now for our look at the opposition here on Sportsnet today. Very happy to go down the Atlas Pizza and Sports Bar guest hotline. And whenever we want to chat uh, Vegas Golden Knights, uh, we always go to our next guest, and that's Ken Belke from Sinbin Vegas, who joins us uh, this afternoon. Ken, thanks as always for the time, man. How are you? Pretty good. How are you guys? We're doing really well. Uh, thank you. Uh, a couple weeks out uh, from trade deadline. Looking forward to uh, to this one tonight. And uh, I guess before we dive into uh, a few Vegas topics, Ken, there was a trade yesterday uh, for the Vegas Golden Knights that maybe doesn't have uh, a big effect on this season, but maybe the off season for the Golden Knights. Can you uh, give our listeners maybe a bit of a heads up on what happened with the uh, moving of Shea Weber's contract to Arizona? Yeah, the real blockbuster we've all been waiting for, right? <laughs> yeah. Shea Weber's contract for Dyson Mayo, big one. Yeah, no. So they 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 acquire Dyson Mayo, who's a AHL defenseman. He's he's headed immediately to the AHL. I would imagine he stays there. I don't think they have plans for him. The idea of the deal is simply to get them out of LTIR for next year. Uh, they picked up the Weber contract this summer, and they knew that they were going into LTIR with uh, Leonard on there and Nolan Patrick, and then now they also have Mark Stone. So the idea is they're going to be under LTIR for next season. The hope would be that they will, for the first time in a while, operate outside of LTIR. That's the reason why they would pay off a fifth-round pick to get that, that, that uh, contract off the books. So obviously getting a bit of business done ahead of the offseason. I, I think everyone's looking at Vegas now, Ken, and wondering – okay, Mark Stone is on LTIR, that's opened up some cap space, and that's probably you know going to be weaponized to the best of their ability in the next couple of weeks here. Do you see that being the case now that Mark Stone's on LTIR, that the Golden Knights have the ability to go out and make a major splash if they want to? I think there was some kind of question marks around when the All-Star break happened because they were kind of heading in the wrong direction. They'd been a point per game for about 40 games there. And then they came out of the all-star break and they won five straight. They lost the last one, but got the point in Chicago. So there are now seven, I think seven out of eight games of points. They're, they're playing well enough at this point that it's like, yeah, they're probably going to look at the deadline. The question is just, do they go with the one big name? Do they try to go for two or big, two big names? Do they look for somebody with 
a little bit more term now that they have the extra potential space uh, with, without having to deal with the LTIR this summer? Or do they end up going more the depth route? We've heard him, you know, link to Nolachari before he went. Barbashev's another one. There's uh, Nick Bukes, that's a name that keeps popping up. Uh, types of guys like that. I could see them really going either direction or both. I could see them going with a big guy and then going, you know, with a, with a smaller depth player as well. Uh, you watch this team on a consistent, excuse me, on a consistent basis, Ken. Uh, an ideal pickup for the Vegas Golden Knights in your mind would be who? Um, I had Max Domi's name presented to me last night. I like that one. I don't mind uh, James Van Riemsdyk as an idea. Okay. Uh, I think they need someone that stands in front of the goal and shovels pucks in. They need more of that, more of that kind of grit. Um, I, I think Domi would make sense. And obviously, you know, we're, we're talking guys that probably don't have a lot of term on it for Vegas as they've got, you know, only a handful of, of UFAs heading into next season. They don't have a, a ton of cap space heading to operate with, you know, we're talking short term for Vegas for sure if they're picking somebody up. See, that's kind of where I don't fully know because okay. the short term, if you're going to make a short term move, you need to be a cup contender and like a legitimate cup contender. And I think if you make some sort of short term move, even if it's like a Patrick Kane, maybe the biggest name out there, I don't know that they leap up to being a true like Stanley Cup favorite. Like maybe they're higher up in the West, but like they got a really difficult schedule coming up. It's going to get awfully difficult. So I think they look at kind of trying to find ways that they could potentially help this year and next, understanding that they don't have a lot in the in the prospect pool and the and the pick number is is diminishing. Like they only have five picks for next year and they could very easily go down that path of spending a couple to to make something happen now. So I think they do want the future, but it depends on who the player is. Okay, fair enough. Uh, I'm curious from your perspective too, Ken, how has the team responded since uh, Mark Stone's gone down? Uh, it was pretty bad right away. Yeah. I think there was kind of that uncertainty of what it was going to look like without him, and, and they did not play very well heading into the break, couldn't score, kind of falling behind in every single game. And then the reset seemed to kind of help. It's hard to tell, though, because Nashville's bad. At least they've been bad. Minnesota was struggling, and then they played three really bad teams in there, Chicago, San Jose, and Anaheim didn't play all that well in any of those games. They played a pretty good game against Tampa and they've had the lead basically all the way since the break. I think they've been trailing for like 10 minutes since the break in the six games. So it's, it's been a good little run here, but I don't necessarily think the results have been exactly what they've played, how they've played. They've had good stretches. Like they've definitely had good stretches, but I don't think they've had five wins and and an overtime loss of great hockey. Like they haven't been that good, but they've been good. Yeah, do you have a good sense of what this team is, or is that sort of evolving now that, that Mark Stone's out for the rest of the season? I feel like we've gotten more and more over the course of the last couple of weeks here where, like, they're definitely not a super high-octane offense. Uh, they they need to kind of rely on other teams making mistakes, and, and the way that they play, kind of sitting in their zone defense uh in many ways protecting a lead, even if they don't have one, when they're playing that way and they're playing kind of a – defensive style of hockey they, they are able to generate offense they are able to play that way it's when they get behind and they have to start forcing that things open up and, and they've struggled so it's, it's definitely a team that i would say their their mo is like get the lead and hold it and then extend it by waiting for you to mess up 
Uh, I'm curious. Uh, Shea Theodore's having an outstanding year for the team. He's uh, second on the back end in scoring only to Alex Petrangelo. Feels like a guy that maybe doesn't get a lot of love outside of the uh, the Vegas side of things when it comes to, to his importance to that back six there. How would you feel about you know how Shea Theodore's performed for the team and sort of how important he's been to what they're doing in Vegas? Yeah, he's, he's real good at helping them get the puck out of the defensive zone, which is something that they've had their struggles with when they've had guys down. So when they've been missing Petrangelo for a little while, White Cloud was out, Shea was out for a bit there. They had some struggles getting out of their zone. He's really good at making sure that that doesn't happen, whether that's getting the puck out quickly or making the right pass. He can skate with it in his own zone. That's, that's very helpful to do that. Uh, he's still, you know, he's not ideal defensively when they are in their zone defense and they're sitting there trying to make sure that they don't give up that extra goal. He tends to be one of the guys that can be at fault for some of them, but that's completely made up by his ability to make these stretch passes. He's dancing along the blue line. He's, you know, he's making plays in the offensive zone. And, and right now he's scoring points at a, at a really good clip, basically a point per game for, since he's come back from the injury. So yeah, he's, he's crucial to what they do offensively, but he's not a perfect player defensively. Uh, we'll see uh, former Flames draft pick Laurent Persuade get the start in goal. It'll be his second game of the season. He picked up uh, the start against uh, the Chicago Blackhawks in that shootout loss the other day, like you mentioned. Uh, technically fourth on the depth chart for the Golden Knights. What's the situation like ahead of him? How serious is the, the situation with Aiden Hill and Logan Thompson right now? The one with Thompson is it was described as week to week a couple weeks back. Uh, there we've heard different things about that where that one's probably the rest of this month for sure. And then the hope is sometime middle to end of March. And that's if things go well. And there was some kind of hesitation from George McPhee, the president of hockey operations on a podcast about that, that like, well, they're hoping he hits his timeline, which mm-hmm. is not normally the way I hear them talk about those. So I don't know exactly what that one's going to be, but I don't think that's short-term. They're going to be without him for a bit. Hill seems to be okay. It, it seems like that one was nothing all that serious. He was on the ice today. Uh, Brassois was terrific in Chicago, so I think the thought is we were going to give him a game anyway. He was very good in said game. We might as well just give him another one here and then see where they're at. I would assume Hill will be back in the lineup by the end of the week, next week at the latest we're taking a look at the Flames' opposition tonight, the Vegas Golden Knights with Ken Belke from Sinbin Vegas, uh, joining us down the Atlas Pizza and Sports Bar guest hotline. Uh, Ken, tell me about Paul Carter, uh, a guy that I don't think many Flames fans uh, would know much about, but he's uh, heading into his 40th game of the season tonight. He uh, is a former 2018 draft pick, 115th overall, I believe, and he's seen himself move up and down this Vegas lineup this year. Yeah, and he's been at the top of the lineup recently. He mm-hmm. plays with Eichel now, and he's been kind of the the net net drive guy with Eichel, and that's something that you basically we found you have to have with Eichel is someone has to go to the goal to open up that space and allow Eichel to do the things that he's best at, and Cotter's been terrific at it. I just think, like, the way to describe him is kind of a little bulldog. Like, he's not the biggest guy, but he plays like a bigger guy where he just is a pain to play against, whether that's in the corners or going towards the net. He's constantly driving the goal with the puck uh he's he's really got great hands in tight you look you see him on the on the shootout he's spectacular at it he missed his one uh two nights ago but he is he's amazing at that really really nice player really a good find for the golden knights and i think he was a guy they thought 
was going to kind of be pushing the NHL level and maybe go back and forth between there and the A this year, he has absolutely made a name for himself, and there's no way he's going back at this point. He's definitely an NHL player. So we spotlighted a couple of these guys that were standing out for me and Shea Theodore and Carter who were, you know, some really positive stories. And I'm, I'm not trying to get you to, to rag on anybody here, but is there anybody that maybe hasn't met expectations or that the Golden Knights would like to see a bit more down the stretch here post-trade deadline maybe? I mean, the first name that jumps to the, the forefront there is probably Eichel. And, and it's it's not horribly fair because he's been a lot better in the last couple of games, but the power play has been an absolute disaster. I think they're one for 32 now and Oh, for 24, if I'm not mistaken with those numbers, it's all I know is they have not scored a power play goal in February. Oh, for February is bad. And Eichel's a huge reason for it. Like he's, Cassidy wants the puck moving quickly and he just does not do it, refuses to do it. We can't figure out why that's happening at five on five. He's been better defensively. He's been better recently, but again, they've been leading and we seem to, we have these times where when the golden Knights go behind, that's when they've had bigger issues with Eichel. I I don't think it's like any sort of huge problem that like, this is the, this is what's going to be their downfall or anything like that. But when you when you pay as much as they pay to get him and they're you know it's a ten million dollar player, you'd like to see that consistent offense and defense and helping your special teams at all times. And we haven't quite had it consistently through the year. And this is for a guy that's almost at a point per game. So he can, I just think he could be a little bit better. Uh from a, a team perspective, I know we've seen these these two teams going back to, to October. It feels like a lifetime ago now, and the Flames picked up a three two win. Uh, in that one, but I guess just from a team perspective, Ken, when you look at the Vegas Golden Knights and what they do this year, maybe different than last year with Bruce Cassidy at the helm, what would you you say is the difference in style for Vegas for the most part? They're a lot more conservative in their own zone. So okay. They spend a lot more time in the defensive zone. Uh, the the DeBoer system really liked to kind of overload when there were opportunities to get the puck out. Uh, they would kind of swarm pucks into corners, swarm up towards the uh, point if that if that was the opportunity there and try to get the puck out of the zone as quickly as physically possible. This team doesn't really do that. They're pretty comfortable with you holding the puck around the outsides and some teams that give problems to and other teams are able to kind of take advantage of it because you can hem them in. And it's something we've seen a lot in second periods. The Golden Knights have struggled in second periods because they haven't quite been able to get their, their changes consistently and they, they get hemmed in and then they end up having problems. Calgary was a team that I remember the first, uh, first game. They, they were able to hem the Golden Knights in, get pucks to the goal, and then, then make problems in front of the goal. It hasn't been as easy to do against the Golden Knights as they gotten more comfortable in this system. And, and I think that's something that, that Flames fans are going to see today. Is like you may have offensive zone time, but it may not come to as much, and the Golden Knights are pretty comfortable with that. Uh, I like doing this with uh, people who cover the team just uh, to give an inside perspective to Flames fans watching at home tonight. If there was a, a guy that we haven't talked about, Ken, that you think uh, is, is worth watching from a Flames perspective tonight against the Golden Knights, I guess, or from a Golden Knights standpoint, I should say that you know we haven't talked about, who would that be for you? Uh, definitely William Carrier. Yeah. Uh, he's been terrific basically this entire season. It, it's his best scoring season in regards to goals, but he's always kind of been the same type of player, but we're just getting more of it this season where he's really good skater, really good in on the four check, 
very direct line, like loves going to the goal, loves the wraparound shot, brings everything directly to the front of the goal, and then is just a bear to get out of there once he's there. Uh, he has been really good matched up with, with Phil Kessel and Chandler Stevenson in the past like seven or eight games that they've played together, and he's scoring, which has not been the case. Historically, it's almost been a joke where he's gotten so many high-danger chances that he was like the antithesis of the – uh, expected goal stat, the opposite has been the case this year. He's getting them and he's finishing them. And he's been really, really good the entire season. And I think most fans don't know how good of a player he's been. And uh, as usual, for anybody looking to get uh, the insight on everything Golden Knights, you guys are still doing it uh, at Sinbin Vegas and at the website, hey? That's correct, Sinbin.Vegas. And, and I would recommend uh, maybe stay off of there for the article I'm about to publish because it's about how bad the Flames have been at T-Mobile. So <laughs> go tomorrow, maybe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe tomorrow if it's uh, if it's slightly <laughs> different. If they picked up one win in Vegas, you might feel a little bit better about it. But, uh, yeah, it's been, uh, it was crazy going through all the stat packs and everything about the the ineptitude and the you know the two minutes of, of lead time in. It's I know. crazy to think it's been like that. Wild. Two minutes and nine seconds in seven games. That's insane. Yeah, really. And, and hey, no excuse for a Vegas flu tonight. You just got in late last night, but uh, we'll see what tonight brings. Ken, always appreciate the time. You're always so gracious for us up here in Calgary. Really appreciate it. Enjoy the game tonight, man. We'll chat with you again soon, hey? Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you. Ken Belke, uh, with a look at the opposition tonight, the Vegas Golden Knights are the Flames' opponent. They saw each other back in October. It was a 3-2 win for your Calgary Flames back on October 18th. They will see each other tonight, 7 o'clock puck drop, and then uh, two more times uh, for the Flames and the Golden Knights in March. Uh, March 16th, they'll be back in Vegas, and then March 23rd in Calgary. So you're still going to get a fair uh, view of the West Division and Pacific Pacific Division leading uh, Vegas Golden Knights when it comes to the Calgary Flames. And, yes, uh, the stats, not great in Vegas. Uh if you do dare look at the article uh, that uh, our friends at Sinbin Vegas are going to put out there, uh, it's not good. 0-7 in Vegas, lifetime for the Calgary Flames. They've scored eight goals. They've let in 30. Their power play sits at 6.7% in those seven games. The penalty kill at 75%. But like I said with Lou in hour one, maybe some different faces. Maybe Jonathan Huberto and... Nazem Kadri and McKenzie, maybe they don't care. They don't. They weren't part of those seven losses. It's just like the the old Honda Center curse. They don't. They know new faces. It's time to break the streak. It would be great for the Flames uh, to uh, kick off this road trip with back to back wins. We'll see if they can do that tonight. Once again, thanks to Ken Belke uh, from Sinbin Vegas joining us on the Atlas Pizza and Sports Bar guest hotline for our look at the opposition. We'll take a break. Come back on the other side. End things off on this Thursday with our Thursday chat with MLB Network's Adnan Verk coming up next here on Sportsnet 960 The Fan. You're listening to Sportsnet Today with Logan Gordon on the home of the Flames, Sportsnet 960 The Fan. Welcome back to Sportsnet Today. It's Logan Gordon along with you. Thursday game day for the Calgary Flames. Don't miss it. The Flames go for their first ever win in Vegas. If I haven't mentioned it enough, Cam, did you know the Flames haven't won in Vegas? I'm just finding this out for the the first time myself. Who would have found out that news without me repeating it 17 times over the last two hours? 
But yes, Flames, 0-7 in Las Vegas since the Golden Knights became a thing. They'll look to buck that trend tonight. Pat Steinberg, Pete Labardius have Flames warm up at 6. Lou and Derek Wills with the call at 7 right here on your home of the Calgary Flames. Sportsnet 960 The Fan. But it is Thursday, and it's time to go down the Atlas Pizza and Sports Bar and guest hotline for our regular Thursday chat with Adnan Verk from MLB Network, NHL Network, and the Cinephile Podcast. Good afternoon, Adnan. How are you, sir? Logo, I'm doing great, buddy. How you doing? How's the week been? Uh, it's been pretty good. Um, and there's really only one way I could start this interview off, and uh, really the gift of Twitter never ceases you know, to, to give us good content for the show. Uh, how is that horny goat weed working out for you? <laughs> I still can't believe that exists. I went. One of my kids has strep throat. I went to Rite Aid, which is the equivalent of our shopper's drug yep. mart, and as I was there, right next to the, the, the counter was a container, and it said horny goat weed. And I said, I don't even know what this is, but I'm taking a picture and I'm posting it immediately. <laughs> so I, I, I honestly have no idea what it is. I don't. I don't. I'm assuming it's like something to help grow grass. It's a weed killer of some type, but I, I, I've never seen a product. Uh, I think unless it was like in a, you know, adult thrift store and literally have horny on the, on the title, but <laughs> horny goat weed is available now at your local stores here in Jersey. Twenty nine ninety nine, And you get uh, a big bottle of, uh, it says pro male formula. So yeah, that's exactly what, uh, that's what you need to kick off the week. And uh, I was just curious. It seems like a, Seems like a good supply for twenty nine bucks. Yeah, thankfully I didn't buy it. Oh, okay. I yeah. Uh, I, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm not. I'm not in need of any horny goat weed right now. But uh, you know, hey, <laughs> if the time strikes, I'll be ready. Yeah, you've got that in your back pocket. You know where to get it. Uh, no need to uh, to rush out anywhere. Uh, Verk, uh, spring training underway across the majors. Everybody has uh, reported. We're getting excited for some spring training baseball coming up in uh, just a 24 hours or so. We'll have uh, games underway from spring training. Did you get excited this time of year? Is spring training getting underway still an exciting moment for you? No question. Um, right before you called, I was actually Googling. Uh, let me just double check. Opening day is March 30th, which is always a special day. And then I was always curious, when is March Madness this year, which is March 16th? And the reason why is post-Super Bowl, this is – the toughest part, right? This one month malaise before you really get into the other kind of sports. And it's something against basketball and hockey, but there's still with 20 games left the season, like a quarter of the way left. You're like, all right, we still get a little bit of ways. NHL trade deadline. Okay. A little bit of juice there. Where's Patrick Kane going to end up? But really hockey feels like, especially, I mean, got it both in the West and the Eastern conference, those wild card spots going to go down to the nitty gritty. So it's a long way of saying, this is the moment where I really need some baseball. And this is where I do look forward to spring training. And I was checking. The first actual games are this Saturday. So I'm actually here at the network right now. We're previewing specifically the Dodgers and Marlins today. And then Saturday is our first chance to see some spring training games. And, yeah, I get it. I don't watch the whole game. I'm not that much of a nerd. But I like watching two or three innings. I like seeing the sunshine. I like seeing Aaron Judge and Mookie Betts and Freddie Freeman. And all the stars are back again. They have one at bat. And then they go sit down and hang out for the rest of their day. And I'm good with that. That's why it's called spring training. But I think this year will be particularly interesting because this is where we're going to see the new rules in place. So mm-hmm. I, I'm fascinated to watch this Saturday spring training, to watch a pitch clock for the first time, to see bigger bases, which my friend Alex Cora says look like a pizza box. I'm curious to see what it looks like to not see a shift finally. 
and we're going to get two weeks of spring training, and then things get even more exciting because March 8th is when the WBC begins. And the World Baseball Classic, Canada up against Great Britain, I think March 11th is our first game. The Dominican heavily favored, but USA is obviously going to be in the mix, Japan as well. So it's an interesting time, man. Like I said, normally post-Super Bowl, I always feel like it's a grind just to get to March Madness, like that one month. But spring training for a couple weeks with new rules, plus WBC, I'm feeling pretty good. I was thinking about this today ahead of our chat, and I don't know what it is about spring training baseball. I don't know if it's the atmosphere, just being in these different areas or what it is. But for me, pretty much every other preseason, if you want to call it that, is a grind. I I can't, I hate football preseason. I can't stand it. Hockey is okay for a couple of games, but it's way too long. It's like a month and a half. There's like nine preseason games. There's split squad games in hockey, which is just the most ridiculous thing ever. I don't feel the same way about spring training baseball. I feel like it's a good length of time. There's just enough storylines to sort of keep me through it, but I'm not, you know, worn out of it by the time opening day comes along where I'm just yearning for regular season baseball. I have no idea why that is, but it just, I don't get the same sort of fatigue from spring training that I do from other uh, preseasons. Yeah, I'm with you, man. Especially, uh, God, if you look at football preseason, it's only a month, but it just feels like it's interminable because it's in, you know, it begins late July, goes through August. There's really nothing happening. The games themselves are atrocious, right? None of the starters play unless it's the third preseason game. So I'm with you. With, with, with football, definitely I have no interest in training camp, unlike others who get so ramped up for the season. And with hockey and basketball, I'm with you. Like, this, like the, the one month of September, I'm like, hey, let's just get to when the hockey actually matters. And basketball, similarly in October, let's get to when the basketball matters. We're spring training, especially this year. I, I feel like being able to see the new rules, being able to see new players, kind of get loose a little bit. I think there's no shortage of storylines which will make it interesting and exciting. Uh, let's get to some major topics. I'll ask you about the Toronto Blue Jays in a few here, but I wanted to start uh, asking you about Shohei Otani. He's uh, set to make the opening day start for the Angels. Uh, he's talked uh, a little bit here at spring training about, you know, this is the last year of his deal. He's uh, talked about, you know, his agent has talked about he's earned the right to test the market as a free agent. Where do you come down uh, on Shohei Otani? Does he owe the Angels any sort of answer before free agency in your mind, or is this just a case of, hey, it's every player's right to go to free agency, and when a guy is as unique as Shohei Otani is, it's probably in his best interest to go out to free agency and see what that might bring for him. Yeah, I think he's earned the right at this point. Like, I think if he looks at the situation and says, listen, I appreciate what happened here with Los Angeles. Uh, I gave it my best, but ultimately this is a situation which doesn't feel like it's going to be a long-term fix. He's going to be 30 sooner rather than later. The angels aren't going anywhere. If you look at their projected win total this year, it looks like it's probably going to be like about 83 wins. So this is again, going to be a 500 team and you go, okay, is he really going to struggle through? And I don't mean his numbers. I'm saying mentally struggle through another year of not being a part of a contender like now. And I think, again, he's earned the right to test free agency like all players do. He's given the Angels all that and more. If he wants to go and see if he can be a $50 million a year player, then, then you know, power to him. So I, I think what's going to happen is this. The Angels are probably going to have another mediocre season. And they're going to have to look dead in the eye and go, okay, we should just trade this guy. Like, trade him in July and go ahead and get something for him rather than lose him for nothing. And I think if you listen to what Otani's camp is saying, it's pretty clear they're going to test free agency. If right now the Angels try to re-sign him, I think he'd say, you know what, 
Let me just play through the year and see how things go. He has that confidence in himself, and he wants to. The market will bear. So the Angels got to be smart about this and go, all right, hey, let's, uh, let's not overdo this because there's one way this is going to go, and it's probably not going to be our way. So I think if they're smart, they see how the season transpires, but probably trade them in July. And think about what you could get for them. Now, Juan Soto gets traded from the Nationals to the Padres, and they got like two blue-chip prospects, another B-level prospect, and then like two major leaguers, including Luke Voigt. Um, so I don't know if you're getting five for one for Otani because it's only two months, or Soto is two and a half years of the Padres. Mm-hmm. But no doubt about it, whoever gets him, I think it's at least a three for one. I think it's an elite prospect. It's another prospect and an everyday player, bare minimum. And who knows what the Padres might do, the Dodgers might do, the Yankees might do. If they find out Otani's in the block, you better believe each of those teams will be trying to up the ante of the other because they're going to view it as not just a rental, but we're going to get Otani for a couple of months and then we're going to sign him to a 10-year, $400 million deal. Yeah, I've never understood the Angels' resistance in all of this to move Shohei Otani. They've always been so so steadfast in it, Adnan, that we're not moving this guy. He's a key piece for us. And look, I get he's a special piece. You brought him over. He's had he's won all these awards for you, but you're not a good team. It's not like this is a team that's been on the precipice of playoffs and championships and all of this. In, in fact, they're probably going to be looked at as the franchise that wasted two Hall of Famers' careers in Mike Trout and Shohei Otani. Why would you not use that? Do you understand? Do you have a good feel as to where that resistance has come from from uh, from an LA perspective? No, I don't know, man. It, it's a tough one to figure out. I mean, the Angels right now, when you look at their finances, it's mind-boggling because you're paying thirty-six million a year to Trout, who's you know probably maybe now the third best player in baseball. I think it's Otani. I think it's Aaron Judge. Those guys are one-two, depending on which day you ask me. So Trout is still obviously in the top five, top three. He gets thirty-six million. $35 million goes to Anthony Rendon. Absolute bust. He's missed more games than he's played so far with the Angels. He cashed it at the right time, but it's been awful. Now, that's $71 million. Otani, to me, is minimum a $40 million a year player. Minimum. So that's $111 million all of a sudden for three dudes, and only one of them is a pitcher. You're still going to go out and get a bunch of pitching and support this team. So I think for the Angels, they've been poorly constructed. They're hamstrung by a bad Rendon deal. And most important thing is ownership. Artie Moreno thought it looked like he was going to sell the team, put them up for blocking. You know what? Actually, I changed my mind. I think if a new owner was coming in, there were some whispers. It might be some Japanese investor. They would literally give Otani half a billion dollars he'd stay. But if it's the same owner, I think Otani's going to say, same old, same old. I want to change the scenery. And again, if you're the Angels, I kind of think, Logan, why wouldn't you just trade him right now? Like, if you don't think you're going to re-sign him, why would you start entertaining offers right now? You know teams will give up more for a full year of Otani rather than just two years of show, uh, two months of Shohei. What do you make of the Mets and the message that's come out over the last couple of days from whether it be Steve Cohen or from their uh, general manager Billy Epler, who defended the team's you know record payroll that's going to come in at uh, I believe the number was what three hundred and twenty million. It might be more than that, three hundred seventy million. Um, and that's over the you know the CBT threshold, but they're they're kind of pausing it with expectations. They're not saying, "Hey, we're spending all this money and we expect to win a World Series championship." Steve Cohen's kind of said, "Look, we're just trying to build this the right way and take it step by step." Is it possible to be spending as much money as the Mets are going to this year, Adnan, and not have high expectations? No, I, I listen. I think sometimes you're trying to couch things right. You, you go on an expensive vacation and say, "Hey." 
It's $7,000 Disney World, but hopefully have a good time. No, no, we'd better have a good time. We're paying $7,000 to a Disney World. My kids <laughs> going in every single ride. I don't care. We're up at 6 a.m. till 6 p.m. That's what it's going to be. So sometimes you try to couch things a little bit and go, hey, listen, we're just trying to have a good season. Yeah, go in the right direction. But everyone knows that's ridiculous. Of course they want to win a World Series. And, of course, Steve Cohen is not going to invest that much money just to see them win 101 games like a year ago and then flame out. Like, he wants to see this team do something special and, and make hay. So I, I get the fact you want to caution fans and say, hey, just because we spend the most money doesn't mean we win the World Series. That is true. But – at the same time, you're not spending that kind of money unless you're looking to win, plain and simple. And I think everyone recognizes that, and everyone's almost kind of laughing a little bit, going, okay, sure, no, no problem, Steve. Billy, you guys just want to have a good season? You know, throw all $300 million up there, see what happens. They're looking to win, and, and that's a three-horse race in that division. I mean, they and the Braves both won 101 games a year ago. The Phillies won 87 games and then won the World Series. It's going to be awfully interesting to see how that transpires because that division is going to be a bear. Of course, uh, here in Calgary, uh, being with sister stations with uh, Sportsnet 590 in Toronto, uh, we'll cover lots of Blue Jays baseball throughout the season. And uh, it's high expectations for this group, Adnan, who feel like they've passed the point of walking and, and you know getting those baby steps into being a contender. It feels like the window is open now for this Blue Jays team, and they expect to do some winning this year. Do you see this as a team that can fulfill those kind of expectations? I think so. I mean, listen, I think for the Blue Jays, they've got to realize that the window is going to be closing sooner rather than later. You can't keep telling me we've got this great nucleus of young players. It's all coming together. Like eventually you go, but we got to win now. Like, we can't just be like, hey, we're on the precipice. Like, two years ago, they missed the playoffs. Came up, you know, unfortunately short. Last year made the playoffs, which is good news, but unfortunately lost in that quick two games against the Seattle Mariners. So now it's got to be step-by-step process. It's got to be, hey, let's Okay, made the wild card last year. Let's win a division now. Let's let's take the next step because these guys are going to get awfully expensive. Bichette, they bought out his arbitration years, but he's still eligible to be a free agent three years from now. Vladdy is going to be a free agent three years from now. You know he's going to be getting $300 million. Alec Manoa is going to be a free agent three years from now. So I, I know those guys aren't up right now, so it doesn't feel pressing. But my point is you've got to make hay while you can because eventually either you're going to have to pay them a ton or they're going to leave. And when I look at the Yankees, I go – that team won 99 games, and they added Carlos Rodon. Like, the, the big thing they had to do was keep Judge, of course. But they added Rodon, who I think has been a top-ten pitcher in baseball the last two years. Like, that's a real shot in the arm for that rotation. The Rays can never be underestimated. They're always going to win 90 games, no matter what. That team's winning 90 games. Now, the Red Sox stink. Okay, we'll give you that. The Orioles are better. Nobody expected them to even be in the playoff mix. They might bang on the door of a wild card at 85 wins. So, I think for the Jays, they're a really good team. I like the fact they mix and match a little bit. Bringing in Kiermaier helps their defense. They short up the bullpen. They're going to lose to Oscar's bat, of course. But I think they've got to have the expectation that they're going to win the division because every year it's going to get harder when you're playing with teams like that. I want to talk some hockey with you as well. Uh, Obviously, you do plenty of work for MLB and NHL Network. We're just a couple weeks out from the NHL's trade deadline. The Leafs make a big splash and get Ryan O'Reilly from the St. Louis Blues as well as Noel Achari. So that takes off one of the bigger pieces heading into the trade deadline. When you look at the landscape, uh, Virk, who do you see as the big fish out there? Patrick Kane's been on a ridiculous tear the last week or so, trying to prove that he's still got some major value. But is it is it really still the Timo Meyer sweepstakes in your mind? I think it is. Oh, God, that Kane goal at .1 seconds. Greatest goal to never have oh. 
I, I, I love any guy, Logan, on a breakaway who fires a slap shot to me. That's such an <laughs> old-school hockey move. I, I loved everything about it. Forget about the clock. I just love the fact on a breakaway, he teed up a slap shot and he scored. It was such an awesome play to me to have the kind of balls and the guts to do that. It was amazing to see. So Patrick came to me, top of the list. I get it. He's 34 years of age, um, you know, $10.5 million cap it, not having a great year by his standards. You know, he's on pace for like 55, 56 points, but – I think Kane, as you said, has been great recently. The hat trick against the Leafs is notable. So when I was looking at the targets initially, the NHL never always puts it out for us. Kane at the top of the list, O'Reilly goes to the Leafs, Tara Sanker to the Rangers. Still curious about Dylan Larkin. Like Dylan Larkin's making $6.1 million, 26 years of age, Detroit guy. But apparently he wants like nine, nine and a half, ten. And the rumor is Stevie Y is like, well, eight and a half. Like I'll give you a raise, but I'm not going to go above a certain number. So I, I'm fascinated to see what happens with Dylan Larkin. If, if he gets moved, obviously he's a very special player, but you feel like Detroit's going to get better one of these days, and that's going to be one of their, their key points moving forward. So, curious happens with Larkin. Of course, Taves now taken off the board, which is unfortunate because of his health, but I'm with you on Timo Meyer. I mean, the Sharks, I think they've got two interesting guys there, Meyer and Carlson. Carlson's on pace like 110 points, which is insane. And there's no guarantee he gets moved, but potentially he could be. And Meyer's a guy who obviously can score is a dynamic presence. You look at a handful of teams where he could go. So those are the major names for me. Obviously, came but Meyer and Carlson. Can you imagine Carlson, the rumors Elliot Friedman was telling me last week about Edmondson? Imagine a three-on-three, right? McDavid, Drysaddle, and Carlson is bananas. And Kane, especially here in this series, I know living in North Jersey, still rumors about the Rangers. I don't know how they're going to make that work. They already got Tarasenko. And he's got instant chemistry with Panarin, but there's still rumors about Kane coming here. I think he goes to Dallas, maybe goes to Vegas, and gives both those teams what they did, which is a terrific scoring option and a veteran presence. And uh, while we've got some time, let's dive into uh, the latest edition of the Cinephile podcast. Uh, it just came out yesterday. Uh, you talk about Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantum Mania. You know me and Steinberg are big uh, Marvel movie nerds uh, here at the uh, station. We, uh, we love talking about those movies, but I left... Uh, the theater fairly underwhelmed uh, with Ant-Man. How did you feel about it, Virk? Yeah, I felt the same way. Like, I'm at the other spectrum of you guys. I'm, I'm not excited to see a Marvel movie. I'm basically doing grudgingly taking my kids and hoping to be entertained. Likeable cast. I mean, Rudd's about as endearing a lead man as it gets. Like, he doesn't look like a typical superhero, which is, of course, adding to his charm playing Ant-Man. Although I am struck while watching it thinking, like, what are Michael Douglas and Michelle Pfeiffer thinking? Like, two Two great actors now with a bunch of green screens just hanging out, picking up a paycheck. But such is life. Jonathan Majors, as you know, going to be the next big thing for the MCU villains. I do think he's got great presence. But back to your point, as far as the story, at times I was confused. Uh, it felt like a lot like a Star Wars episode, didn't it? Like It felt like they were in one of these like early Star Wars mm-hmm. prequels. Like they're in this Quantumania. Very, it was a lot more sci-fi for an MCU movie, or particularly for an Ant-Man movie, which I wasn't necessarily expecting. Always nice to see Bill Murray show up. But ultimately, it's underwhelming. Like, the best I can say about it is it's only two hours. But as I said, the plot kind of goes all over the place. It isn't necessarily satisfying on an action level. Kind of like Thor, Love, and Thunder. Like, both Thor and Ant-Man, to me, were pleasant surprises when I first saw their movies. Fun, enjoyable, quirky. And now it just feels like there's only so much left in the tank. I think we're up to, like, 31 Marvel movies right now. So it's, it's wild how the universe just keeps on expanding and will never stop. But I'm with you. Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania, could have been better. Uh, you also take some time in the, the latest cinephile uh, to talk about a house made of splinters. I thought this was a, an interesting one to dive into. Yeah, fantastic documentary. I've now seen all the documentaries nominated for the Academy Awards. And, and say this for the year itself. You know, a lot of movies this year, 
uh, as far as 2022 are concerned for the Oscars, I think could have been underwhelming or wasn't a strong year for films. But the documentaries logo, they always bring it, man. When I see the five nominees, I say these are great. And Fire of Love, to me, was one of my favorite movies of the year. That's about a couple of volcanologists, two people in love with volcanoes. They chase volcanoes all the way around the world. It's about as fascinating as it gets as that sounds. Navalny is amazing. That's about Putin's primary rival and his rise to politics. It's funny. It's enjoyable. And it's also dark and concerning. There's also All the Beauty and the Bloodshed, which I just saw, which is in some ways the frontrunner to win the Academy Award for Best Documentary. It's from Laura Poitras, who won previously for Citizen Four. She'd be only the second documentarian ever to win two Oscars for documentary. It's about Nan Golden, who has had a fascinating life uh, overcoming personal abuse and drugs and also taking on the Sackler family. Those are the guys, of course, who sent out OxyContin, which has killed so many lives. It's been such a sad tragedy. But her and her crew are looking for justice, and it's an excellent doc. And that gets us to A House Made of Splinters, which I had to ask a friend for the screener. He sent it to me. I watched it. Beautifully made documentary. I don't know how anybody doesn't have a huge heart for foster parents and foster families. And in this case, it's kids in Ukraine who are coming from impoverished homes, generally dealing with parental neglect, oftentimes alcoholism, sometimes verbal abuse, physical abuse, who knows, but they leave their families, go to this hospital, and then look for foster homes. So it's, it's a temporary home for them to almost kind of collect their breath, refocus their thoughts, rehab, so to speak, and then go on to the rest of their lives. It's a beautifully made documentary. It's short, which is only about 90 minutes. They follow three kids in particular, but really tugs at the heartstrings. I encourage people to check it out. A House Made of Splinters, Oscar nominated for Best Documentary. And uh, last but not least, I'm not going to ask you to go through all 15, and I'd rather people go and listen to the actual podcast itself. But you go through 15 movies to look forward to this year. Give me a couple. Give uh, the Calgary listeners a few that were on your list and uh, tease them to go hear the other 15 because there's, there's a couple of really good ones on this list that are right there at the top for me as well. But give me a couple on your list uh, for movies to look forward to this year, Virk. So I'll give you the obvious picks. Indiana Jones number five, which I just can't believe that Harrison Ford at the age of 80 right now is reprising this role. Sean Connery was 20 years younger than him when he played his father in one of the Indiana Jones movies. And now Indy's still getting it going at the age of 80. They used some CGI to make him look younger, but the fact he's still got the hat and the bullwhip, that has my attention as James Mangle, the terrific director of Logan and Steven Spielberg producing that comes out in June. Something for you and Steiny, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, the sequel which, again, of the MCU universe, I did love Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. So I look forward to the sequel. I think it looks fantastic. Look forward to that. The number one one for me, as you know, Killers of the Flower Moon. Mm -hmm. Every time there's a new Martin Scorsese event, especially when he's now 80 years of age, we don't know how many more movies my guy's going to keep making. So whenever I hear a new film from Martin Scorsese, nothing makes me happier. He's a guy who loved Westerns as a kid. The Searcher is one of his favorite movies. That was really an inspiration for Taxi Driver. The first Western of Marty's career. I read the book. It's terrific. It's going to star Leonardo DiCaprio and Robert De Niro. His two favorite guys. De Niro's been in nine movies with Marty, and DiCaprio's been in five. And now they reunite again for this one, both of them together with Marty, which is going to be special to see. Jesse Plemons is in the cast as well. It's all about the, uh, the rooting and just the looting of the lands of the Osage Indians uh, 100 years ago. So it's really good political matter and uh, – I think it's good. I've read the book. The book is fantastic. So I cannot wait to see the movie. So, yeah, that one, of course, Oppenheimer, too. Christopher Nolan's new movie, but the guy who literally created the atomic bomb, Killian Murphy, Matt Damon, uh, Kenneth Branagh, many others. That's coming out July 21st. So it'll be a fun year for movies if those four can live up to the hype. 
the Cinephile Podcast, wherever you get your podcast, uh, with our man Adnan Vern from MLB Network and NHL Network. He joins us every single Thursday uh, here on Sportsnet today. Adnan, thanks for the time. As always, Powell will chat with you again next week, eh? Logo, you're the best. We'll talk soon. Take care. Adnan Verk, MLB Network, NHL Network, Cinephile Podcast, uh, a million other things. He's the best. Uh, love our Thursday chats uh, with Adnan. Trade deadline's coming up. Spring training is right around the corner. You're going to have Blue Jays baseball on your radio before you know it. And, uh, yeah, I'm a big movie nerd, so I love uh, chatting movies uh, with Adnan every single Thursday. That's going to do it for Sportsnet today. Thank you to Verk. Thank you to Ken Belke for our look at the opposition today. And thank you to uh, Peter Labardius for joining us to talk all things Calgary Flames. The podcast will be up momentarily wherever you get your podcasts. Google, Amazon, Spotify, or your favorite pod catcher. I'm Logan Gordon here on Sportsnet 960 The Fan.